Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there's wealthformula.com. That is the home base for Wealth Formula Podcast. And that's where you can get all sorts of resources, including free books from yours truly and the likes of George Newberry. His book, Burn Zones, my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Lots of free stuff, great resources. Check out that website. Again, it's wealthformula.com. And also, if you cannot get enough of Wealth Formula, you ought to strongly consider joining our private network. The private network is great because it starts up with the course. The course gets us all on the same page with the likes of you know, lecturers like uh, Ken McElroy and Tom Wheelwright and um, uh, Dean Graziosi, Christian Allen, all sorts of these really smart people, Kevin Day. And then you have an additional uh, network on top of that. That network includes a, a private uh, portal where we have ongoing content, private Facebook network, which is popular, obviously, so you can communicate with one another. And finally, perhaps the most popular thing of them all by weekly mastermind call. So if you're trying to find your community, if you are the type of person who loves talking money and investing, etc., but none, but none of your neighbors like to talk about it. That was me basically, right? None of your friends really like talking about money. That was me basically. Then you ought to join this group, Wealth Formula Network, and it's all rolled up into one. Check it all at wealthformularoadmap.com. Again, that's wealthformularoadmap.com. Speaking of Ken McElroy and Tom Wheelwright, they will be amongst the, uh, pan, uh, the, the, the group speaking at our first Wealth Formula meetup in Scottsdale, Arizona on March 2nd. The event actually starts informally on the 1st for a meetup, uh, informal meetup at a local watering hole. Uh, and then the next day, we will have lectures from Ken McElroy, Tom Wheelwright, David Steele from Western Wealth Capital. Then we'll have lunch. Then we will hear from Christian Allen, Damian Lupo. Then we'll go on a magical bus tour that includes uh, viewing what forcing equity looks like in real time. And you're going to enjoy it. You may even see properties if you're an investor club that you already have part ownership in. So it should be pretty darn cool. And frankly, I just think it's going to be the coolest thing to be able to meet you all in in person. We we already have, I think, 65 people registered for this. We're capped at about 100. 
It's not till March, so there's still a little bit of space left. If you want to come, now is the time to check it out. And I should also point out that there is a, the special for the hotel rooms and stuff uh, basically ends after this week. Uh, at the end of January, all these specials that we got on hotels, etc., are done. So check it out. Go to wealthformulaevents.com. Sign up now. Like I said, we're capped at around 100. We're already at around 65 people. And, um, you know, we still got well over, you know, well over a month. So I think we're going to cap probably within the next couple of weeks is my guess. But I would love to see you there. And I'm going to make a strong effort to try to meet every single one of you. But I'm really bad with names. So we're going to have name tags. Anyway, let's talk about today's show. It sounds kind of like, you know, not it's a little depressing, right? Who it's like poverty and inequality. Who cares about poverty and inequality? Well, you know, it's strange to think of the way our politics have evolved even in my lifetime. Of course, I'm no spring chicken. I'm 45 years old, but the first president I remember and barely remember, frankly, is uh Jimmy Carter. The first real memory I have is my dad was overseas on a business trip. And I remember being, I think I was in kindergarten or before kindergarten, I don't know. But he asked me what was going on. And I said, I was watching the elections here, Daddy. And I saw that Ronald Reagan won the election. I think I called it before it was officially called. But it was clear that everybody on TV was saying that Ronald Reagan was going to be president. So most of my grade school years were spent in Reagan years. Now, after a bumpy start to the Reagan administration, I mean, we didn't uh, we didn't inherit a terrible economy at that time. But Paul Volcker came in, and you know Reagan worked a little bit of magic, and we had the Roaring Eighties. As you can tell, I I liked Ronald Reagan very much. I like Ronald Reagan very much, and that's the kind of Republican that I am. I'm not a Trump Republican. I know some of you will disown me for that, but I'm not. Anyway, it was a decade remembered, you know, the 1980s, where it was a decade remembered for wealth and excess. You remember, if you're my age or around there, you remember what it was like. You had those movies like Wall Street with Michael Douglas. You had Michael J. Fox as Alex P. Keaton on Family Ties. Remember that? You know, the Republican Party at the time was pretty clearly the party of the rich, and it made little effort to concern itself with the poverty and equality issues of the day. And frankly, you know, (laughs) it didn't really matter uh, in some ways. Ideologically, it was a different mindset back then, right? The appealing nature of the 1980s in hindsight was that it was so aspirational. The early, you know, after the initial Reagan bump, uh, uh, the, the real bumpy ride at the very beginning, it was so aspirational. It was indeed morning in America. And for those of you who uh, know what I'm talking about, this was a Reagan commercial uh, during the election, which was talking about a new America after the hopelessness of the Carter economy, everyone seems so optimistic with Ronald Reagan. Now, that's why, in fact, that even the middle class, the traditionally democratic bastion of unions and the Democratic Party, well, they defected and they became what 
was known as Reagan Democrats. And the party actually continued. The party, meaning like the happy days, like the happy days of America, continued through the 90s into the Clinton years. In fact, Clinton represented a new kind of Democrat who had to pivot from the old kind of Jimmy Carter Democrat. He embraced Wall Street and free trade. He was the one who was actually uh, the one who was... um, responsible, frankly, for the ability of banks to grow into hedge funds and use the same FDIC-insured money to make big bets with everybody else's money. And that was called the Glass-Steagall repeal, and that was under the Clinton administration. So listen, at the end of the day, the difference between in policy between uh, the Clinton Democrats and the Reagan Republicans or, uh, you know, the Bush Republicans was pretty nominal at that point. And why? Because rising tides raise all ships. And even if some ships are rising more than others, that's OK. Even those ones that are rising a little less, they're still pretty happy. You know, a recent Brookings Institute analysis found that out of the last five presidents, the largest annual income gains in the middle class occurred during the Reagan and Clinton years. In general, uh, if, if you remember those years, these were really good times in America for, for people in general. Now, I know there was plenty of families that were struggling. I mean, my, my wife's family was struggling back in those years, too, and her parents were very much anti-Reagan. you know Reagan. But generally, people as a whole were optimistic about the country and the way things were going. And that's why in 1984, you saw such a massive landslide of of Reagan defeating Walter Mondale, who was the vice president for uh, Jimmy Carter. And also, by the way, um, a Minnesotan. Back then, I remember Mondale only won the state of Minnesota in the District of Columbia. So anyway, Now, to be clear, I just want to point something out. There is a ton of data showing that it makes no statistical difference to the economic performance of the country at large here, whether there's a Republican or Democrat in the White House. In fact, the study, the ITR economics guys did a study on that. And if anything, I hate to say it, but there is a slight advantage to the Democrats What I'm getting at here is that when times were good economically for the middle class, there was less divisiveness in the country. That's all I'm trying to get at here. And it's no coincidence that over the last two decades, now, median household incomes have barely budged, employment and wages are declining, and that happens to correspond to the rise of political divisiveness, demagoguery, and nationalism. You know, you, you've got almost 80% of Americans believing today that the children of today will grow up worse off than their parents. Think about that. Think about that, right? I mean, that isn't mourning in America. That's downright depressing. Now, what happens when people are not doing well and people are worried about the future and the future of their children? It starts with blaming everyone else around you for your problems, right? Specifically, if you can find a minority group or somebody else to to point out as part of the problem, then that uh, that seems to be a human tendency. And maybe that's why, you know, anti-Semitism and white white nationalism is on the rise. I mean, people become more tribal and insular 
during times of economic crises. They stick with their own and look for scapegoats. And the worst example of that, of course, in recent history was Nazi Germany, which followed a horrific economic period of hyperinflation following the World War I uh, reparations that it had to pay. Now, we see a lot more divisiveness in our politics and both parties right now are pandering to our worst instincts. And I really hate that, frankly, that my kids are growing up in this kind of polarized country right now. It's awful for them to even see what's going on on television and what, you know, leaders of the country are saying. Now, listen, here's the thing. Most of us are doing pretty well. Those of us who listen to this show, listen to me, and we've made a lot of economic gains over the past several years. We've been riding the bull market after the Great Recession. So it's not really that easy necessarily to recognize uh, all this underlying strife that exists in the underbelly of America. But that's a mistake. It's a mistake. Why? Because eventually when everyone is hurting enough, they will come for us with pitchforks. Now, what do I mean by pitchforks? Well, that could be civil unrest. That could be just what it sounds like. Or... It could be a 70% tax bracket for the top couple of percent of tax payers. That was recently suggested by the likes of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's time to take this seriously, bottom line is. You cannot ignore it. It won't go away. And there are a lot of people who you might not expect to care that much about inequality and poverty and that sort of thing. But those people who are smart, and they're speaking extensively about the issue. Robert Kiyosaki is one of them, right? Robert Kiyosaki, to his credit, has been very concerned about economic inequality and the, you know, the shrinking middle class. Also, of course, billionaire Charles Cook, you know, of the Koch, of the Koch brothers, Charles Koch, Koch, Koch. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, you know, these guys are known as, you know, from from Democrats and from people who uh, are generally, you know, left of center and further left than that uh, as as very horrible people. But even Charles Koch, who's CEO of Koch Industries, billionaire, even him, he understands and has written extensively about the problem that exists there. And it's exactly because of that. He knows that, you know, this kind of inequality and poverty actually creates an unstable America. And in an unstable America, it's really hard for any of us to prosper. And Koch is, of course, a libertarian, and he represents many of the um, potential ideas to try to address some of these problems that the libertarian side has. So today we're going to talk to another libertarian from the Cato Institute named Mike Tanner, who shares a lot of the the same things that Charles Koch writes about. Uh, A lot of this is common sense strategies um, that may be more nuanced than simply raising taxes. And in fact, these strategies are probably the ones that make the most sense, but unfortunately get the least political attention. So and when we come back, Mike Tanner of the Cato Institute. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, 
and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to wealthformulabanking.com. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Michael Tanner. Mike is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute where he heads research into a variety of domestic policies uh, with a particular emphasis on poverty and social welfare, health care reform, and social security. Uh, Mike is a true thought leader. I mean, he is the author of numerous pu books on public policy, and his writings have been in nearly every American, uh, at least American newspapers, and New York Times and Washington Post. The Congressional Quarterly named him uh, one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security, and the New York Times refers to him as a lucid writer and skilled polemicist. Michael, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Well, listen, I want to start out, I have to admit, you know, being from the, the Cato Institute, which is a libertarian think tank, I was somewhat surprised to see that as a libertarian, you focused on issues of poverty and social welfare policy. Uh, it's not typically what you think of when you hear of, uh, when you think of uh, libertarian rhetoric per se. How did you get interested in this topic? Well, I think it actually should be something that's central to libertarian policy and libertarian rhetoric, because the reason I'm a libertarian is that I believe in the equal worth and dignity of every person, and the reason I pursue libertarian policies is to enable basically what might be called human flourishing, the idea that society is better, and that's every person from those people at the top to those people at the very bottom, and libertarians happen to have solutions that will enable people at the bottom to become full economic participants and basically rise up the economic ladder. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Fundamentally, from a policy perspective, I'm just sort of contrasting it a little bit from what you typically kind of hear, right? You, you hear a, a little bit of different rhetoric sometimes with people at least who call themselves libertarians. Okay, so if, if let, let's kind of focus in on why we should care about this. So I'm Say I'm living an upper middle class life, working as a doctor or a lawyer. I'm doing fine. I'm living the quote unquote American dreams, you know, outside of the fact that I should care because I'm not an evil person who doesn't care about anybody else. In practical terms, why should I care about income inequality and poverty? Well, in practical terms, uh, aside from the simple fact that you should care about your fellow man, there's the act of stability in society. I mean, we don't want to end up being some sort of South American country where you have gated communities and then the great masses outside trying to get in and take your stuff. Basically, we want people in our society who can look, you know, who, who feel like they're part of that society and feel like they have a stake in the stability of it and in moving forward. 
Plus, you need those need folks who are educated, hardworking, willing to invest and take risks if you expect the economy to grow. And, uh, and of course, you're not going to get rich yourself uh, unless they're part of it. Yeah. In other words, you, if you want society to flourish, you got to have you, you know you got you have to address this issue. And so we all stand to gain from it. And sometimes I think that message gets lost a little bit. Give me some actual examples of libertarian policies on dealing with poverty and how uh, specifically they might be different from some of the traditional Democratic and Republican policy agenda. Sure. Well, I I think that, first of all, you have to look at why people are poor. And I think that Republicans have generally indulged in some form of victim blaming. They have basically said people are poor because they make poor decisions. They don't work. They drop out of school. They get pregnant when they're not married and so on. The left uh, says, well, that's fine as far as it goes, but you have to look at why people make those bad decisions. And that has a lot to do with racism and gender discrimination and economic dislocation. Uh, What I suggest is that both of those have something to them. But they also miss the larger point, which is that government policies are often responsible for the problems, regardless of which side of that debate you come down on. And that means we need to look at things like criminal justice reform, a school choice and educational freedom, forming housing laws, zoning and land use laws to bring down the cost of rent, banking laws and, and other ways they block the poor from participating in savings and investment. And finally, we need to make any economic growth we have inclusive. That means getting rid of occupational licensures, occupational zoning, the minimum wage, things that block the poor from getting in and starting up that economic ladder. So let's kind of drill down on some of those, if, if we might. It's a, Specifically, um, let's, let's start with criminal justice reform. What's wrong with the system now and how can we improve it? Well, we know that the criminal justice system as it is now is heavily biased against uh, the poor and people of color. But even leaving that aside, the general overcriminalization of our society means that you have large numbers of people, particularly in low-income and minority communities, who are, in fact, rendered outside the economic mainstream because they have a criminal record. If you get busted for having drugs, let's say, when you're in your 20s, and later on in your 40s and you go to apply for a job, you still have to put down that you have a felony record, and that can often prevent you from getting a job. It can prevent you from renting an apartment in many places or getting us into college or, or, uh, or getting a, uh, support for your, for your college education. So we need to look at what the criminal record ultimately means to people. And in particular, it also increases uh, problems for women in the inner city because you're basically taking their marriage partners out of the, out of the pool. Uh, William Julius Wilson at Harvard has done a lot of work on this and talks about how you're taking a million and a half young men out of the marriage pool in inner cities, and then we're surprised when you have large numbers of women giving birth outside of marriage. Scholars at Vanderbilt estimate that if we were to reform our criminal justice system, we could reduce poverty by about 20% in this country by that one fact alone. And when you say reformer, you're talking about specifically maybe some specific examples of that might be Say, um, you know, for example, you know, you're talking about overcriminalization. Maybe, maybe some of the drug-related uh, convictions. Maybe some of those could be less stringent, and maybe there could be some limitations in terms of how long a felony or something like that stays on your record. Well, absolutely. I think it starts top to bottom. Everything from the way we police our cities to the way we uh, what we criminalize 
it's not just drugs, although that's certainly part of it, but sex work and gambling. You know, let's remember that Eric Garner, who was killed in New York City, was committing the crime of selling an untaxed cigarette. So there's a host of things that shouldn't be crimes that are in our society. It has to do with the way we plea bargain. It has to do with how we sentence people once they're there and then how we treat people once they're in prison. So it's, it's basically a top-to-bottom change in the, in the criminal justice system, one that's designed to punish those small number of recidivist hard, uh, people who commit serious crimes that, that harm other people and basically treats other people uh, with a little bit of dignity. So you also talk, I know, a little bit about um, some zoning laws and how those negatively impact the poor. Can you, can you talk about uh, why that is the case? Sure. It hurts in several ways. First of all, we know that rent takes up a large portion of income for low-income people, that they disproportionately pay a bigger share of their income in rent. It's about 40% on average. And so anything that drives up the cost of housing or drives up rent is going to leave poor people at a disadvantage. And the evidence suggests that land use laws and rent and zoning laws uh, have a huge impact on rent. In some cases, they can, uh, like Manhattan and San Francisco, they can drive up the cost of rent by 50%. Uh, in other cities, Washington, D.C., and Baltimore, it's 30 to 40% and so on across the board. That's a huge impact uh, that makes it much tougher for poor people to live. In addition, those high rents force poor people into certain low-income neighborhoods and prevent them from moving to areas that might have better schools, lower crime, or more jobs. You know, if you have the skill and want to try to move into Silicon Valley, good luck, because the rents are simply unaffordable. How does, in practicality, though, how does how would that work if you if you're not? I guess my question is, I'm, uh, is I was just thinking about this as you were saying that you know I was in uh, San Francisco around Thanksgiving and there was an area uh, that um, my my wife used to be uh, in that uh, live that area and she told me it was low income housing, which I was kind of surprised by because you know. A block later, we saw these multi-million-dollar homes. Um, if those areas weren't zoned that way, wouldn't they? Those people living in those low-income areas have to move. Would they have to move somewhere else entirely? I'm, um, I'm just trying to understand. Well, you'd have more of, housing available. You'd have more housing available for people with low income. You don't have to just build low-income housing as well. If you build more high-density, high-income housing. People who are able to afford those but have been confined to lower-cost uh, lower areas because the, of the zoning laws and the added sort of zoning tax, they would then move up, and that opens up their housing to other people, and you get this sort of chain reaction moving up the housing scale. Basically, you know, what you want to do is have more high-density housing in certain areas, particularly around transportation hubs. What you want to do is be able to build in areas that don't have all sorts of restrictions limiting on housing. You know, in San Francisco, just to cite one example, there's restrictions on having to have more than one parking space per apartment uh, in the city. Uh, things like that add enormously to the cost of, of a house or an apartment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So another thing that you mentioned a little bit was occupational licensing Talk a little bit about the the overregulation, perhaps in terms of occupational licensing, and um, you know how that affects the situation. Sure, twenty-five to thirty percent of all jobs today require you to get a license from the state in order to be able to practice it. And I'm not talking about doctors and lawyers. I'm talking about things like uh, beauticians and hair braiders and funeral attendants 
and interior designers and so on, a variety of jobs that people with low skills or families uh, or simply entering the uh, labor force for the first time, the type of jobs that they would take, they're often blocked out of. And it's not just that you have to get the license, but that the procedures for getting those licenses are often onerous. Just like just one example in Louisiana, if you want to be a beautician, you have to take uh, you have to take a course, which is an expensive course and lasts a long time. Then you have to take a test. That test is a two-day test, and it's only given in Monroe, Louisiana, which means that you have to be able to find transportation and a hotel room uh, overnight, take the test, hope you pass it, uh, pay to take the test, of course. Uh, now, if you're a low-income single mother trying to get her first job, uh, that's a real barrier for you. What do you do instead? I mean, you, do you have um, some barriers? I mean, where do you draw the line, though? I guess that's really kind of the question that comes up. I mean, who determines, you know, whether or not you need to have a license or not for a given you How about know. the customer? Yeah. Basically, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I think if you went to beauty school, uh, school cosmetology school, and you got a certification, uh, and you want to put that in your window so your customers know, great. Right. But if I want to go to my next door neighbor uh, because she's, uh, you know, pretty good at cutting hair, and uh, I want to let her do it, why not? Yeah. Here's another example of how that can potentially open up economic opportunity on a, on a you know, kind of on an enterprise level, you look at something like Uber, uh, which, you know, essentially democratized this, you know, what what used to be a monopoly of, of, of taxi companies. Is that the kind of, uh, is that the kind of thing that you, you kind of are, are looking as, as ways to increase economic growth and opportunity? Oh, absolutely. Uber has been a godsend for the poor. First of all, in terms of jobs, because it enables them to work around uh, odd schedules. All you need is a car to be able, uh, basically in a computer, to be able to, to hook up to it. Uh, so it has provided a, a source of jobs for low people with few skills and entering the labor force. But it's also enabled uh, poor neighborhoods to get service that they often couldn't get. Taxis are often reluctant to take people to low-income, high-crime neighborhoods. Uber's been much more willing to do that sort of thing. Yeah, especially if a lot of the people are actually living in those neighborhoods. It allows them that level of empowerment as well. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, unemployment, uh, you know, unemployment insurance. You know, this is a this is a tricky one, right? So what what is the practical, first of all, how do you feel about unemployment insurance? What's the data and, and, and what's your take on it? Well, the evidence suggests that unemployment insurance uh, in the short term benefits the unemployed, but in the long term it tends to, to hurt them. It actually keeps them out of the labor market longer. We know uh, the evidence suggests that when somebody gets laid off, for example, in the first couple of months after they're laid off, they spend a great deal of time looking for another job. And then they go into a trough where they don't spend a great deal of time looking. And then as their unemployment benefits are about to run out, they suddenly begin to look again. The problem is if that's a year or two down the line, their skills may have atrophied to the point where they can no longer get the type of job that they want. So it does have an impact, uh, we know, in terms of household income, and it has an impact in terms of returning to the labor force. So there are reasons to be concerned about it. Yeah, as, and as an employer, uh, uh, I've seen that happen as well, where literally people um, you know, have, have asked to be fired. 
uh, rather than resign in, in these type of situations because they know they have that option for unemployment. But the, but the thing that I wonder, though, uh, and is, is kind of what is the alternative? Because obviously I'm, I'm talking about some situations where people are looking to specifically take advantage of the system. But what are the alternatives if you have people out there who don't have work um, and, uh, and no money? I mean, what, I mean what, what else can you do? Well, ultimately, uh, in any society, you're going to have a limit to unemployment insurance. The Denmark, for example, just cut back to a two-year maximum uh, in terms of their unemployment insurance. So even in sort of socialist Scandinavia, uh, you're seeing limits on how long unemployment insurance can last. Yeah, I mean, you can't say that forever. You lose a job when you're 22, and when you're 50, if you haven't gotten a new job, we're still going to be carrying you. So it's all a question of, of where you're going to draw the line and what limits you're going to have. And I would suggest that probably shorter is better. Is there any other programs or training or anything like that that you advocate for? Well, I, I mean, I think in terms of government programs, we haven't seen a huge amount of success. The government has a couple of dozen different job training programs, and very few of them provide any evidence that they uh, make people more employable. In fact, there's some suggestion that some of these programs actually hurt your job chances. What it is is it keeps you out of the labor force while you're doing the training, but you don't actually learn any new skills. So basically, it, it just makes you less employable over the long term. Yeah, and that's, again, the problem that you have is, you, you know, you've got the government trying to, which is not terribly efficient and, and, and good at doing these kinds of things in the first place. So um, let me ask you this. Uh, these are these policy solutions that you offer. Obviously, I, I would say that a lot of people would listen to this and say, "Those are good ideas." I really, you know, I, why, why aren't we hearing more about that? You know, and and in this political climate, you know, with the increasing polarization between Democrats and Republicans, and you know, there's not a lot of necessarily any uh, significant political power from from the actual libertarian, um, you know side the libertarian party what do you think the likelihood is of an actual bipartisan effort to deal with any of these issues of poverty in the near future well right now there's very little uh, possibility of bipartisan agreement on motherhood and apple pie and the flag uh, <laughs> yeah, right i mean people are so dug into their the various corners on this that it's going to be very difficult to get any any agreement However, I do think the type of agenda that I've been laying out holds promise. There have been, for example, bipartisan efforts at criminal justice reform. You, you see the, the SAFE Act uh, in Congress right now is probably going to die this year, but it's been supported by liberals, by conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, even the Trump administration has gotten behind it. What is, what is so, the SAFE uh, Act? What, what exactly that, is that? That basically would change some of the federal uh, rules as far as sentencing, uh, limit the use of three strikes uh, and mandatory laws and mandatory minimum laws. Uh, it would make it easier for people in prison to earn credits by education and job training while they're in prison to get out a little bit. If they participate in these programs, they could get out a little bit earlier. Uh, it would go back and change some of the uh, the harshness and the sensing laws for crack cocaine on a retroactive basis where crack was punishable by at six times the rate of powdered cocaine. Uh, so it would make a number of small reforms. Most of the efforts at these reforms are going to have to take place at the state level, not the federal level, but certainly getting some federal momentum behind it's a good thing. Mike, this has uh, been really good stuff. Where can we learn more about your work? Well, you can certainly go to Cato.org uh, and see, uh, check our website on this. And, of course, I have a new book uh, that's out uh, 
this weekend, and uh, it's called The Inclusive Economy, How to Bring Wealth to America's Poor, and it's available on all the major uh, sale book websites and in a bookstore near you. So is that basically covering a lot of the issues we talked about today, the inclusive economy? That uh, that. Uh, what we talked about today is basically a summary of it. Exactly. So that's great. Uh, we'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. And Mike, thanks again for being on Wealth Formula Podcast. Anytime. Thank you. Take care. Well, welcome back to the show, everyone. Now, I know poverty and income equality is not exactly a sexy topic, but it is important. And um, one other book I would suggest on the topic, if you're interested is uh, by Muhammad al Aryan. The book is called The Only Game in Town. Now, on another note, I'm eager again to see everyone at our event in Scottsdale, uh, Titans of Multifamily Real Estate. Make sure to check out the event at, at make sure to check out the event at Wealth Formula Events with an S.com. Uh, by the way, we have some hotel specials again. I would just want to mention they are expiring at the end of January. So if you're planning to come, you should sign up and Get your hotel rooms booked ASAP. Anyway, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.